Uh, Today's text is Psalm 34. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, or we're going to have it on the screen, Psalm 34. We're going to do the first seven verses this morning. And um, Psalm 34 is so rich. It's a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of worship. It's a psalm of praise, a psalm that's very messianic. It points directly to our Lord Jesus Christ. And psalms are amazing for a few different reasons. But for one is that they're very personal, right? They carry a lot of raw emotion in them, personal thoughts, right? And the only way we can really get a glimpse into what's behind the psalm and to getting into the author's heart and understanding his life circumstances is to look at the Bible and any kind of clues that we have as to when these events took place. So if you look at Psalm 34, uh, the superscription of the psalm, what's right above it, it reads, Of David... When he changed his behavior before Ambimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, who is Ambimelech? Ambimelech is a, something of a royal title that Philistine kings had. Think of something like Caesar. Uh, Caesar was a title that the Roman emperors carried in honor of Julius Caesar. It's the same thing here. Uh, so this king, uh, it references Ambimelech, is actually King Achish. And if you'd like... You can turn to 1 Samuel 21. That's 1 Samuel 21 and verses 10 to 15. I'll go through these. We'll see these together. But in order to paint this scene for you, what's occurred is that Saul has now grown extremely jealous of David. He understands that God has chosen David to be the next king of Israel. So he spears him twice in public, misses both times. He's tried to kill David. And David obviously now goes on the run. He flees Israel. And so he runs away from Israel, and he goes to the city of Gath. And something happens very, very quickly. If you look at verse 10, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to King A- to Achish, the king of Gath. Now Gath was Goliath's hometown. I don't need to explain to you how much of a tactically unsound decision this was for David. Um, he goes to Goliath's hometown. He's fleeing. And within verse 10, from the moment he flees, he's automatically captured. It's that fast. They catch him and they bring him to King Achish. Verse 11 there, right? The servants of Achish, these are his Philistine captors. Uh, they say, is this, not, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, for them to recognize him that quickly in an age where there was no social media, right? There were no pictures of people flying around. They know him immediately. They see him. They recognize him. He knows that. He's heard what they said. And he is straight up terrified. Verse 12, And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So David's terrified, as he should be. He's basically dead man walking. He is in enemy territory. His death will be cause for great celebration. They'll probably start a holiday about it, killing the man that killed their champion, Goliath. So what does David do in this situation? He's terrified. He's scared. Right now, life looks pretty dark. What's he do? He puts his trust and his faith in God. But he has to also do something to get out of the situation, practically speaking. Verse 13, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. David's quick solution to this situation is to fake insanity, 
to pretend he's crazy, to pretend he's mad, right? There's a specific reason why he does this. Back in the ancient world, whenever you lost your mind, whenever you were mad, it was often understood to be that your specific God had taken away your mind, had taken away your mental faculties, right? And it was a particularly brutal punishment, right? If you think of it, you kill someone, immediate death, they're dead. That, that's it. They don't feel anything after that, right? But if you take away someone's mind, if you turn them into a madman, right? You shame them in front of everybody. You humiliate them, right? They start acting like a wild animal, kind of like what he's doing now, David. And in this shaming, this is, this is obviously, right, a God who has taken a very personal interest in punishing this individual, and the way the ancients saw it was that if you interfered with this punishment, if you went ahead and killed this person, well, then you interfered with, with their justice, and what they would most likely do is take your mind away. So whenever you saw a madman, you typically left them go, let them go. It was dishonorable to kill them. So David has to fake his insanity. The soldiers, they quickly bring him to their king, And he reacts very fast to what he sees. Verse 14. Behold, you see the man is mad. Why didn't you brought him to me? Do I lack madman that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? In other words, get him out of here. Get him. I don't need this guy here. He is clearly mad, right? This is a God that has punished him personally. I can't do anything with him. If I kill this guy, I'm going to get this punishment. Just get him out of here. Let public enemy number one, let him go. So despite all the odds, David survives. Now, how is David going to react in the face of this great physical salvation? Right? God has saved them from certain death. God has saved them out of a situation where there appeared to be absolutely no hope. What's he pray in response to this? What's he going to sing in response to this? Well, it's good that we know the answer, that we have Psalm 34, because Psalm 34 is the answer. That is, that's what we have here today. It's written in response to this. Our outline this morning, if you want to follow an outline, um, that's what we always do. Uh, outline has two points today. One, we're going to look at the Christian's praise life. And two, we're going to look at the Christian's thankful heart. One, the praise life of a Christian. Two, the thankful heart of a Christian. So let's turn to Psalm 34 just now. And I'm going to just read the first seven verses in their entirety. And we'll work through it from there. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him, fear him and delivers them. Verse number one is so revealing to us right now. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David's words here are are picked very carefully. When we think of blessing, what do we normally think about? God blessing us, right? That's who blesses. God blesses us. But he's saying here, he will bless God. I will bless God. 
Now, the Hebrew word here used here is barak. Barak has the sense of it of filling something with life and goodness, so much so that it overflows, it reproduces, it multiplies, right? Think of something like Genesis 1, right? When God blesses Adam and Eve, right? What does he say to them, right? Be fruitful and do what? Multiply, right? Go into the earth, fill it, and subdue it. It has this idea of filling with life and reproducing. It's something other people see, something that takes, that has effects, right? So God, so David resolves to bless God. How? By continually praising Him. At all times, praise isn't just going to go on in David's mind, right? Praise is going to come out of David's heart. Everyone around, out of David's mouth, everyone around David is going to hear him praising God. It's going to be a public thing. And we remember what our Lord taught us about what we say, right? The mouth speaks out of an abundance of what? The heart. So when praise flows out of the mouth, it's coming directly from the heart, right? This is genuine praise and thanksgiving that David has given God, that he's going to bless God with, right? He is going to fill the air, the area around him with praise to God, right? And he wants to see that multiply, right? We're going to see that take place, right? Now, I don't want us to miss the enthusiasm here before we keep going, right? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. We look at verse 2 now. Before we look at verse 2 now, I want us to just remember one thing. David is not out of the wilderness just yet, right? When the Philistines let him go, he had on himself food and a sword before they captured him, right? You know when they let him go, they didn't let him keep that sword, right? And you know they didn't give him an abundance of food either, right? He is arguably right now, though he survived death, he's arguably worse off than when he first started. At least when he first started, he had food and a weapon. Now he's got nothing, now he's really in dire straits. He's in enemy territory. Find their king, let him go. That doesn't mean, by the way, that all the soldiers, including maybe some rogue elements of the Philistine army, have got to let him live. He is still in extremely dangerous territory, and he's praising God, right? His circumstances have not affected that. There's something I can exhort you to this morning. Um, it's wonderful to sing praise during Sunday worship, and we should, and it was a wonderful thing we just did. But I, I want to invite you to consider singing praise on other days of the week as well, right? There are other good times to do it, right? Think about the car ride to work. You can sing as loud as you want and not be afraid anyone's going to hear you, right? You can just sing your heart out, right? You can laugh, folks. It's all right. <laughs> all right? So you can sing in the car or anywhere else. We always want to hammer home that prayer is essential to the Christian's life, having a consistent and strong prayer life. Having a consistent and strong habit of daily Bible reading is, is important. But so is a consistent and strong praise life, right? A discipline in praising God all the days of the week. Now let's, let's turn and look at verse 2. Verse 2. He's going to take this even further. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. Now to magnify something means to take something small that you can't quite understand, right, and to make it big. Right? That's how uh, a camera works when you up the magnification. That's how a magnifying glass works if you put it in front of some text. Um, it's how a microscope works, right? A microscope takes something that's really, really small, perhaps even invisible to the human eye, something you can't understand, 
and it makes it larger so that you can see it, right? It permits you to see something for what it truly is, how complex it is, how elaborate it is. It gives you the opportunity to understand it. And here, David is doing the same. He's going to magnify God. How? By praising Him. Other people will see it. Other people will feel that contagious sense to join in praise with David. And furthermore, right? and the humble here, by the way, are the people of God, right? The humble here are the people of God who are glad when we hear God's name praised, as we should all be, right? But the effects of this, I, I don't want you to lose uh, a sense of the effects of the power of what David here is teaching us to do. If you think of Acts 16, Acts 16, right, where Paul and Silas are jailed in Philippi, right? Luke includes a very important detail in this account. Verse 25, right? At, at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the detail? And the prisoners were listening to him. Now, he has to make that point. The prisoners were listening. When the earthquake comes and shakes the foundation of the jail, and the cell doors pop open, and the chains break off the prisoners, and the jailer comes out and he sees all this, what's he immediately going to do? Kill himself, right? Because if those prisoners all escape, there's no way he can explain it. He's probably going to be executed, right? And what happens? Paul calls out to him, says, oh, don't, right? We're all here. All the prisoners were there. Now, why would they stay there? What's the only explanation we've got from this scripture? Because they heard what Paul was doing and Silas was doing. They heard him praising God, him singing hymns. They heard him praying. And they would rather stay in jail and hear those words of hope than to run outside in a world where there was no hope. They cherished what they were getting from Paul, that magnification of the Lord, more than their own personal freedom. And they stay in jail. Right? Eventually the jailer comes out, things get settled, but they stay. That's the way it goes. Right? So I want us to remember also here when we look at these verses, that this is all to lead us somewhere we're, we're, we're about praise. We have to understand praise. Let's look at Psalm 34, verses 4 and 5. Psalm 34, verses 4 and 5. I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. David can praise God because his heart is full of thankfulness to God. That's how he can praise God. That's how he can do it. Why? Because he knows God heard him, and God answered him. And that's why we should have our hearts always filled with praise to the Lord. We know that the Lord hears us. We know that he answers us. And we know that he will always deliver us. David's not upset that he just had to scratch wood and let drool go all over his face, which most of us, let's face it, that's really unpleasant, right, if that had to happen, right? He's not upset about that, not one bit. He's just grateful to the Lord that the Lord delivered him out of all his fears. This deliverance is complete, right? David's not left in any kind of sort of damaged spiritual state. No, he's giving all the credit to God, everything. Now, that word radiant, though, that's something we need to 
talk about. It's an allusion to Exodus 34. When Moses goes up to the mountain, he grabs the two stone tablets of the law, he comes down, and his face is just radiant. Everyone can see it, right? There's a, everyone, you can't not behold it. Everyone sees it. Well, why does he use that here, right? It's actually very beautiful, that passage, by the way, with Moses, right? One of the things that always strikes me is uh, what God says in the manner how he spoke to Moses, right? He spoke to Moses how? As a friend to a friend, right? Very close proximity, very close relationship with God as a friend to a friend, right? And David is using this imagery to say that just as Moses was obviously radiant to the outside world, when we praise and magnify God, right? The darkness of the world is not going to overcome us. Moses had a very rough time with the people of Israel. Very rough time, right? And he's saying here, Moses was radiant. Why? Because he had gone to God. He had gotten his instruction from God. He had worshipped God. He had spoken to God. And he had trusted in God. And for that, he was radiant. He was fine when he came down. Everyone saw it, right? And it's the same thing when we magnify God and we praise God. He's saying, just like David left those Philistines, and you know when he left those Philistines, he must have been radiant. He must have been jumping for joy. I mean, we have the words, right? He's saying the same thing to us. When we put our trust in God, when we go and stand before the throne of grace with confidence, right? we're going to walk away radiant. The darkness of the world is not going to overcome us. Now I warn you, before we go on, that the answer we get from the Lord when we cry out to him isn't always going to be the answer we want. Right? And that's a good thing, because God is almighty, and God is all-knowing. And I would rather have God, the all-knowing creator of the universe, determine my path more than myself. Right? I would say I'm the opposite of all-knowing. Right? There are very few subjects that I know something about, and the vast majority I know nothing about. Right? Now, I want to take a deeper dive into this thankfulness, and I want to compare it a little bit for us to, to learn something here. How essential is thankfulness to the Christian life? How important is this? Is there any danger in failing to give thanks to God? How bad is it to be thankless? How bad is it to be ungrateful? What, are there any real consequences here? Well, if we look at Romans 1 to 3, Paul is describing the depraved and sick and evil nature of humanity. And he says a very important detail in chapter 1. I'll read it. Chapter 1, 20 to 21. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, that's God, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give him thanks. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. A failure to give God thanks, to recognize Him for who He is, can have deadly consequences. Deadly consequences. When we look at the book of Numbers, chapter 16, Korah leads a rebellion. He's a member of the Levite tribe. He leads a rebellion against Moses. He's unhappy with God's provisions in the wilderness. He's unhappy with Moses' leadership, right? And the Levites were the tribe that were going to be made the priests. 
They are the ones separated. God actually says that they wouldn't have any land portion because he would take them on to himself. He told the Levites, you will be like God to them. You're going to be my representatives. It didn't mean they were physically divine, but it meant that they were his representatives to the people. And they come and start a rebellion. And what's Moses say to them? Moses says, hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation to bring you near to himself? Was that a small calling he gave you? Were those small provisions he, he, he gave you to make you the best of all the tribes and make you the holy tribe? Didn't you ever think about that or give thanks to God for that? Didn't that ever leave a mark on your heart to love the Lord and praise? Well, it did. Not to Korah, not to his rebels. They were ungrateful for the provisions. And they lead a rebellion. And how's it go for them? The earth swallows them up, right? Earth swallows them up. God took care of that problem. How great it is a sin for us to take the blessings of God for granted and not thank Him, not meditate on them. A thankless heart eventually will harden a heart. And again, deadly consequences. I want to look at some other examples in Scripture, though. In fact, uh, the best example I want to look at is what happens in the heavenly throne room. What's going on right now? What's going around around God? Right? What, what's happening around him? Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And the living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to God who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever. So God is constantly in the highest and purest form of worship in the whole universe, earth and heaven included, is constantly hearing thanks. But this also presents uh, an interesting uh, conundrum here to a bit. What are these heavenly beings thanking God for? They never experienced the fall. They are in no need of salvation. They have no struggle with sin. Never experienced a single trial. Be thankful. You've got to be thankful for something. You can't just be thankful for, for nothing. Right? They're thanking God for their very own existence. They're thanking God that God made them and gave them life, and that they get to experience him and see his beauty forever. And that's enough. Last verse here that I'll hit for thankfulness, Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In everything we do, in word or deed, we give thanks to God. Well, I don't seek to minimize the trials and sufferings we encounter in life. There are certainly some things that are going to test and challenge our ability to thank God. Right? Perhaps there's a, a terrifying and debilitating disease that runs in your family. 
Perhaps it, your grandfather had it. And perhaps there are days that you yourself suffer some symptoms of it. And perhaps doctors have told you it's in the cards for your future. Maybe you've you've got a friend that you're texting who just stops texting you back. And you're wondering, what's going on? You don't want to be my friend anymore? So you pay him a visit. What's happened? You check in with his family and realize that something terrible has happened to him. Who gives thanks in those situations? Can you honestly give thanks for that? The answer is no. The answer is no. We cannot be thankful for bad things in our own power. In our own power, we cannot be thankful for bad things. We can be thankful only by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us understand that trials in life are meant to produce a faith that endures, Romans 5.3. It's the Holy Spirit that reminds us and helps us understand that our trials in life work for our good, as all things work for the good of God's children, Romans 8.28. So who are we to ever question God? God who rules the whole universe. From the smallest molecule to the galaxies that we see up in the sky, we are confident that God hears our prayers and answers them. Scholars uh, have found an old verse of a hymn we don't know who to attribute it to. But it, but it reads, He who can say amen to the will of God in his heart will also be able to say hallelujah. He who can say amen to the will of God in his heart will also be able to say hallelujah. Praise and thanksgiving are often two sides of the same coin. Now, I don't want us to be forgetful for some of the blessings we get for granted because those we tend to not give too much thanks for. We ought to always be thankful for our daily bread, our daily provision. And I think I'm actually safer saying this out here than I am back home out east. Uh, But I, for one, am particularly thankful that I worship God in the United States of America. There are not one, not one, not two, but there are 51 nations and counting where the Christian faith is illegal. And when we pray for our overseas missionaries and our overseas brothers and sisters who constantly deal with the threat of danger and death, we should be full of thanks for what we get in America every day. It's not a perfect country. It's not heaven on earth. It couldn't be. But this is a very blessed nation for what we get. Amen. Fellas, do you actively and regularly give thanks to your wife and tell her that? <laughs> right? And tell her that. I, for one, am very thankful and tell my wife all the time I'm thankful for the imperishable beauty of her gentle and quiet spirit. And I've got to take her out of word. I'm not going to think she's a liar. I've got to take her out of word and when she says she's thankful for me, she's telling the truth. <laughs> because she says it all the time. Right? Ladies, do you actively and regularly give thanks for your husband and tell him that? Right? Submission in marriage is not easy, but neither is leading if you want to do it the right way. And your husband is the Son of God, lowercase s, not capital, capital S is Jesus, right? But lowercase s, your husband is the Son of God, 
that the Lord gave you to care for and to love for life. And we ought to be very thankful, right? Are we all thankful for every single one of our brothers and sisters in Christ? And yes, I did say all our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we have to admit, there may be some that are, I mean, a nice way of putting it is probably there, maybe some that may be a bit difficult to love, right? None of you, and surely not me, right? But there may be some, right? But when we think of those folks and we remember that they're a recipient of God's grace, that the Lord loves them and has chosen them just like he did you, that nothing you have was earned. Everything you have was given to you as a gift, as grace, right? Then you have no reason to have a problem with anyone or look down on anyone. None of us do, right? If we all had thankful hearts all the time for everyone in our congregations, divisions would get shut down immediately. Immediately, right? Thankfulness doesn't let them happen. Thankfulness doesn't let them survive. I want to look at the perfect example of thankfulness in the Bible. And the only perfect man ever lived was Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ took the loaves of bread and fish, he gave thanks before the disciples. Made thanks to God, and he gave them to the crowds. The Lord was thankful for his daily provisions. He didn't take anything for granted. When Jesus stood by the tomb of Lazarus and the stone was rolled away, what were the first words he said? He said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of those standing around that they may believe you sent me. Jesus gave public thanks to God, right? And if there was ever a man who absolutely knew his prayer would be heard, it was Jesus Christ. And yet he gives thanks. Right? But when else did, God, did Jesus give thanks? An interesting detail we find. Luke twenty two seventeen, And he took the cup, and he had, after he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That was a different meal from the rest. That was the meal that was going to memorialize his death. Jesus knew what was up ahead for him. Jesus knew that he'd be in the most extreme states of agony, of physical stress, right? He'd be bleeding, he'd be sweating blood, right? Which, by the way, is a real-life condition, okay? I was sitting down one time, and I heard someone preach and say, you know, this is symbolic or something, right? No, it is a real-life condition, right? Hematohydrosis, it is extremely rare, almost always fatal. Basically, when there's so much blood pressure and everything else is uh, difficult in the body, that the capillaries under the skin burst and actually seep through the skin, right? And it'll appear to be like blood because it's basically water mixed with blood. Okay. A real-life condition. Our Lord suffered under the maximum level of physical stress a human being possibly could. And while looking at that cup and looking at the bread and knowing what was ahead, what this meant, he thanks gave thanks. Lord Jesus Christ was full of thankfulness. 
Uh, Puritan theologian Thomas Watson puts it this way, a contented heart where the praises of God are sung forth, not a, the, a contented heart is a temple where the praises of God are sung forth, not a tomb where they are buried. A contented Christian in the greatest trial has his heart enlarged and expanded with thankfulness. He often contemplates God's love in election. He sees that he is a monument to mercy, and he, therefore, desires to practice a pattern of praise. Right? So what are the three steps to being thankful? He hit them all, he hit all three. Remember who God is. He's gracious, good, and almighty. He hears the prayers of his people. That's two. He hears the prayers of his people and saves them in three. We got to remember who we are. Monuments of mercy. Everything we have is thanks to God. Now verse six is a repetition here, a, a classic in Hebrew poetry to really drive the points home. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved them out of all his troubles. Some of his troubles? No, all of his troubles. And verse 7 is what we're going to finish with. And verse 7 is a bit complex. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now this angel of the Lord is a bit of a mysterious character in the Old Testament. And this particular uh, episode that, that David is referencing comes to us from Exodus 14. Once Pharaoh had decided to let the Israelites go, but changed his mind, starts pursuing them, they get to the coast of the Red Sea, they're right behind them, Pharaoh's forces, and the people are terrified. They cry out to Moses, right? Because of what's going on. And what, is, what does God do? What does the angel of the Lord do? Well, he was in front of them, in a pillar of dust during the day and a pillar of fire at night, leading them to the sea. Well, they're there already, so what's he do? He takes that pillar and he puts it behind the Israelites, creating an impenetrable barrier between Israel and the forces of Egypt. The angel of the Lord stood between Israel and their enemies, between Israel and their destruction. He protected them, hence the encamping around those who fear him. And... That leads us to just one more hint before we really understand what's going on here. The angel of the Lord in Joshua 5, uh, Joshua bumps into him, and the angel of the Lord declares himself to be the commander of God's army. And Joshua throws himself to the ground and worships him. Right? Now, angel worship is forbidden in the Bible. All right? Just think of John in Revelations uh, 22 when he tried to worship an angel. Right? What did the angel do? You mustn't do that. Right? Gets him up, says, worship God. Right? So this angel of the Lord, it's okay to worship him. It's good to worship him. But angel worship in general is forbidden. Right? And the angel of the Lord doesn't ever pop up in the New Testament. Right? The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ of the Old Testament, right? We can get that answer very easily in Jude 5. Jude 5 reads, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So who was leading Israel in that pillar of fire and that pillar of dust? It was Jesus who opened up the Red Sea and who closed it on, on Pharaoh and his forces. It was Jesus who did that. 
I want one final word of caution, but the Lord's salvation, especially in the New Covenant, is not a physical one necessarily. It is a spiritual one, right? That being said, the purposes of God will never be thwarted. If he intends to protect an individual, ain't nothing going to happen to him, okay? But salvation is physical, is spiritual, one of, of uh, eternal life. Paul makes it very clear, right? The Lord will rescue me from evil deeds and bring me safely into the heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen, right? To be safely brought into the heavenly kingdom means you first have to pass away here on earth. Right? Paul understood that Lord's salvation for him was eternal life, not, not life here on earth. And that brings us to the gospel. Right? Brings us to the gospel of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? It's Jesus Christ who stands between his people and destruction. Right? It's Jesus Christ who mediates between us and God. It's Jesus Christ who takes our sins upon himself and does away with them and gives us his perfect righteousness. Those who reject him, anyone who rejects Jesus, is choosing to live in a spiritual slavery. Similar to Egypt. You're picking Egypt over the promised land. You're picking a slavery to sin over the one true living God. I want to encourage everybody what Jesus says in John 6.37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I want to encourage anyone here tonight that doesn't follow Jesus to please speak to the pastor here, speak to me, speak to anyone for help. We can help you pray to the Lord for saving faith, for the forgiveness of sins, right? so that you can put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you cry out sincerely for salvation, the Lord will answer. And you can have this relationship too, one of true joy and thanksgiving. I want to close with just two points of application for us, but you can probably guess what they are. One, never cease to praise. This is actually a great hymn by that very same title. You can look it up. Never cease to praise and be active in your thanksgiving to God. Brothers and sisters, we should be the most thankful people on the face of the earth. Other religions, religions in quotes, right? other religions walk around and they wear articles and clothing made up by, by mere mortal men. Right? We don't have to do that, thank God. Right? What we should be wearing is our thankfulness on our sleeve. We should be praising the Lord. Right? It should flow from our hearts everywhere we go. And we'd be magnifying His gospel and His salvation. Two, beware of the dangers and the, and the dreadfulness of a thankless life, of a failure to give thanks to God. And you're crushed in spirit, and we all are at times. And you struggle with doubt, and that comes to every believer's life. Right? Lament psalms are good, 100%. But you can also use psalms of thanksgiving, like Psalm 34, right? Psalm 34, to lift up your spirit so that you do give praise to God. Because otherwise a heart merely hardens. And my parting words to you all this morning is that I am very thankful, me personally, to your pastors and to all of you for listening to me this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we ask for your strength and for your power.
We ask You, Lord, that You would help us be more thankful, Lord. We ask that You would write this Word on the tablet of our hearts. We ask, Father, that in every situation of life, Your Spirit would empower us to see and to remember Your wholesome promises. Or that we would constantly remember that You hear and answer prayer. Lord, that it would move us to come to You with it all and to lay it all at Your feet. Brother, we ask You to give us courage outside in the world to praise Your name everywhere we go. That we wouldn't fear what other people may think. But that, Lord, we would praise Your name and magnify You to the world. That they would see You for who You really are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.